Morning, all. Morning. morning to those of you, again, watching from home this morning. We are talking, as Colin already mentioned this morning, about the Trinity, which, what is the Trinity? Start with there, right from the beginning. Uh, it's a word, it's not a Bible word, but a Bible concept. Three in one, tri-unity is where the word came from. It's sort of invented to, to describe three people, three persons in one God, Trinity. But my guess is, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've probably never heard a sermon on the Trinity. I can say for sure I've never given a sermon on the Trinity, but it's not because, you say, why is that, Rob? Not because it's unimportant, the Trinity. You might say there's no subject that is more important in all of the Bible than the character and nature of God which is what the Trinity is. So it's not because it's unimportant, but it's because, as you might guess, it's, it's very difficult to understand. It's, it's some would say, in a man, because of the nature of it, it's incomprehensible, right? I'm talking about something that's, I'm gonna try to explain to you something that's incomprehensible. One uh, guy I, uh, I like wrote this about this. He said, the Trinity, to, to squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible than trying to insert the full body of an elephant into a thimble so that no part sticks out, okay? That's kind of my challenge here uh, this morning. Uh, but I'm going to try anyway because the Bible, the Trinity, the tri-unity, it's all the word means, right? Uh, three in one, um, is clearly what the Bible teaches, right? Even if I can't understand it, that's why we call it an article of faith, uh, which is what we're in the, doing in this series. So, Trinity, three persons. Let me say a few words about it. One essence. So we, at least a lot of the commentators use that word, or, or theologians. One essence. What do I mean by that? That the God, all three people of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to the sum of what the Bible teaches, first of all, they're all eternal. We'll get to that in a second. In other words, they, they didn't have different starting points. They're all eternal, and they all... Um, possess the same divine attributes. That is, you know, um, when we talk about omnipotence, which means all-powerful, omniscience, all-knowing, transcendent. We're saying what the Bible says is that all three members of the Trinity possess all of these strengths. Let's just put the article up there since we looked at these, just so you know, this is a summary of what the Bible teaches our article of faith. We believe. So what I just got done saying, in one God, one essence, right? He is uh, eternal, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why is this so difficult to talk about? Well, there's no adequate human analogy in human experience. That's why. See, if I, if I were saying to you, trying to exp everything that we know, really, we, we know by analogy, right? If I said to you, well, it's kind of like Marriage. I'm trying to explain something to you. And then immediately you understand what I'm saying and I, and I tease it out. It's kind of like parenting. It's kind of like this kind of relationship. It's kind of like a man and his dog. You know, whatever the case may be. Everything that we know in a manner of speaking, we help know by analogy. It's how our language works or how language itself works. The reason this is so difficult is there is no analogy Adequate analogy in human experience. Many great minds have tried far greater than this one, I mean throughout history, to try to, you know, get the elephant you know, into the thimble, if I, in a manner of speaking. And in some cases, this challenge 
um, resulted in the greatest theological crisis, you might say one of the greatest, the church ever had, long before our time, of course. But if you know church history in the 4th century, the 300s, you know, it, that's when this came together finally in 66 books, you know, for the very first time. So we're talking about the, the genesis of the church. There was such a crisis that almost divided church east and west. This very issue, the nature of God, because people said, as they're just putting together and reading the Bible, saying, it sounds interesting, but it's incomprehensible. It can't mean one God in three persons. And there's where the great creeds of the church came from. Some of us forgot about this, depends on what church you grew up in. But so what would you say the great creeds of the church, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, there was one in Constantinople, they all happen in the fourth century, and they're all largely certain that the biggest one is about this issue, right? It brought the church, in a sense, to its knees. One God eternal in existing in three persons, doesn't make any sense, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all holding um, eternal divine attributes. There were several um, heresies. Let me go over this very quickly. That came out. You'd say, "Well, what's the big deal? What's the issue?" That many people. What was the struggle? Some people believed that this whole idea of the Trinity. How you would explain it? It's one God with three hats on, or one God with three disguises. Right? Kind of like Superman would be one, two, right? Two disguises. He's got Clark Kent. He's got Superman. Well, God has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he, he appears in one way, he appears in another way, but there are three different hats through three different disguises. The technical term for this heresy or this point of view is called modalism, mode. God has, you know, it's one God with three disguises or three modes. And you might say, that's the dustiest old thing I've ever heard. Who, who cares? Or I believe that. I'm not going to tell anybody. But the point is, what, there are people today, as I say, it almost split the church, well-known pastors, if I said their name right now, you'd say, I, I know that everyone in this room or most of you would know him. They believe that. So these are alive and well today. The next one that was majorly at issue in the 4th century was that there are three independent gods, really. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, you, get, you get three gods instead of one. They call that tri-theism. Three gods or polytheism. It's not what the Bible teaches. And then the last one is called subordinationism. You can get the word subordinate, which means this. That there was... The Father, God, often to use the word God is talking about the Father. The Father is the only one that's eternal. And somewhere long, long, long before the creation of the world, long before even time existed, he created the Son and the Spirit. And they're working together in some way, but it's one God and two created gods that are subordinate to the Father. The Bible doesn't teach that either. Doesn't teach that either. Now, here's what I want to say this morning. It's not meant to be a complicated abstraction or distraction from the gospel. I would say this, point of my whole sermon, the Trinity is central to your understanding and your, in my experience, to the gospel. That's why we're taking time out this morning. It's not some dusty abstraction or abstraction. It's central to the gospel itself. Here's the big idea for the whole, uh, whatever I have left this morning. Why am I doing this? The kind of God you have determines the kind of relationship you have with him the kind of God you have and the kind of God you worship determines the kind of relationship you have with him for instance let me just use this as a quick way to say this let's say if you said um you know his God or her God is money well when somebody's God is money it's very obvious 
You can see someone whose God is money, even if it's small g God. It's very clearly demonstrated in the way they treat other people. It's the way in which they, what they value and they don't value. Their God, his God is sex. Well, it's very clear if you hung around with that person how their value system is. Or you fill in the blank. Well, the same goes in the case of worshiping the Almighty God. The kind of God you have, right, determines the kind of God you worship. So, three things in my, you know, what a time I have left. Okay. What the Trinity is, this is high level. What the Trinity, how the Trinity functions in our lives and in the world, and how the Trinity changes you. What it is, how it functions, how it changes you. First thing, what, what the Trinity is fundamentally. The Trinity is an object of beauty and wonder. Okay. We're talking about the most important thing you could be talking about. Oh my goodness, movie stars, automobiles, the, the, the Pacific Ocean, the Rocky Mountains, nothing comes close. We're talking about the most magnificent, the most beautiful, the most amazing piece of reality there is when we're talking about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at a picture. Word of God, Matthew 3, 16 and 17. The Trinity is an object of beauty and wonder. As soon, this is the baptism of Jesus, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and the, saw the Spirit, and he saw the Spirit of God, now there's a second member of the Trinity, descending like a voice, a dove, I'm sorry, alighting on him, and, and then a voice from heaven said, this is the Father, why do I know that? This is my Son, in whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, there are many passages in the Bible, you can take my word for it, although our sermon guide is going to have some resources on the back of it for this whole series, as it did last week, that can help you go deeper in video and articles and books. But you're going to take my word for it this morning, that there are many passages in the Bible that will explain, it doesn't explain the, the, the ontological meaning, it's not going to make math sense for you or me, logical sense, but does explain in very uh, uh, clear ways that there's a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, verses or passages, but this is the only one that I know of where the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are actually in the same place, at the same time, in the same frame. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16. And obviously, I believe this opening the gospel, there's a message here. What's the message? Number one, heaven is open, verse 16. This is the message, this little picture, two verses. Heaven is open, and the voice of God the Father says something. Heaven is open. It's the Father. The second thing it says, the Spirit descended on Jesus and alighted on him. The second thing, the Spirit of God has come down to bring the power and the presence of God. And the third thing it says is Jesus is the identifying son of God who's being plunged into that water. He's everything Jesus Christ does in this life in a manner of speaking is done to identify with you. He was baptized for you pointing to the cleansing of sin. He died on the cross for your sin. So in this picture you see three beautiful things. The interplay of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of one mind and a manner of speaking. All on the same mission. The Father says heaven is open. 
The Spirit says, I'm coming down, descending, like it does in Acts 3, 2 for all of us, to bring power onto Jesus. And Jesus Christ, who is not only God the Son, but the Son of Man, is going to identify for all humanity to be, to be washed in a manner. He, didn't, he wasn't being washed for his sins, but for yours and for mine. The Trinity is an object of beauty and wonder. Twice in my life, um, I had the opportunity to be in the room, I mean, to see in the museum the Mona Lisa. Some of you have seen this in Paris, I'm sure. But the, I'll tell you, when the first time I saw it, it was, in many ways, it was very underwhelming. Okay, she's shaking your head. It's kind of underwhelming. You know, you get up there, I mean, I, I mean there was more, there's a lot of famous art. The Louvre's, I think, the largest museum in the world. So this, you know, there's a lot of famous art in the Louvre, my goodness. Yes, I knew the Mona Lisa was in the Louvre, and I, I stumbled across it, I think, on the second floor, but all of a sudden, you see, it's just such an unusual thing. You see, all, it's like the paparazzi, all these people, just, you know, you know probably 100 or 200 people. The room's not that big. It's smaller than this room, much smaller. I'm taking the one the actual Mona Lisa's in. And there's all these people, and, but it's, the irony is it's, it, they're all flash cameras, but it's a museum. It's quiet. You think, what's going on? The, the president of France is here. Um, movie stars are here. Who don't know? And they're all taking pictures of this painting, which is only about this big. It's two or three feet. Now, I finally got up closer, and it was kind of, but I walked away thinking to myself, you know, you've had these experiences. I wouldn't say it out loud because I'd, I'd sound stupid at the dinner party. You know, I'm not going to, oh, it was wonderful. No, I, I was kind of underwhelmed. And then I heard, I wanted to say, what gives? I listened to James Payne, if you know him, famous art historian, and, he, and talk about it and help me. He said, listen, the Mona Lisa was a revolution in art. It's the most famous painting in the world for good reason, he said, because it was a revolution in art, and it was meant to, by da Vinci, it was meant to upend your expectations on purpose. It was meant to kind of be underwhelming. And he went in to talk about it. He said, first of all, this woman, they know who she is. She was later identified. She was a nobleman's wife. She was an aristocrat, but she had no jewelry on her body. In other words, there was no earrings, no, nothing at all. It was very unusual. She was dressed not like an aristocrat, which all the other paintings of the Renaissance, if they painted women, they were, they were, they were always, poor women never got painted. They were all commissioned art. It was all people that had money. They were aristocrats. They were, they were important people, noble people. She had this very commoner dress on. And then he said the big difference was, the real one of the great revolutions was, they painted her face. All the other artwork done by women, especially painted of women, in the Renaissance were always profile shots. Just what they did. And they would never have a smile on them because the fact that she was face front and she had this subtle smile was a sense it was almost impolite it was it was it was an over vulnerable kind of thing he said this was and then in addition to that which was all revolutionary in the middle of the 16th century early 16th century 1503 1505 then on top of that he said they learned this later there are two or three art innovations I, I, you have to be an artist to understand this, but he talks about them, and he said that had never been done in art. One of them is called aerial, A-E, aerial, R-I-E-L, aerial perspective, and this is what it is. The painting, as you see it right there, most paintings of, of people, men or women, in the, in the Renaissance, the background would always be a blue sky or a wall. This is one of the, that, 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 that sort of, um, you know, background there, this landscape was completely invented in the mind of da Vinci, 
And he put it there. That itself was revolutionary. But what uh, Payne went on to say, this art historian, is it's called aerial perspective because if you are closer to the painting, as you get closer or, 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 or further away, something happens in the perspective between the subject and the background, almost like you do with photography today. That was revolutionary. But he said the whole point, and I'm summarizing, it was meant to underwhelm you so that it would draw you in. I'm talking about this, this art piece of art. Then it would disarm you because it wanted to make you not think about something, but to see things that you've never seen, aerial perspective, and to feel things you've never felt. That's what made this a piece of revolutionary. What I'm saying to you, uh, friends, is Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 is the same thing, Okay? It's not something, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not something that you're supposed to figure out. It's something that was designed to help you see things that you haven't seen and to feel things that you haven't felt in the deepest part of your being about the most important thing in life, which is the God who created you and who created the world. You know, the only two times, there's only two times in all the Bible where, um, in the, the Gospels, where the voice of heaven says something to, um, that's ver- you know, audibly heard on the earth. One is Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus. The other one is the transfiguration. We talked about it last Sunday. James, Peter, and John go up to the mountain. Jesus transforms into a being of light. But you know what happens on both of those occasions? It's the exact same words. Word for word. This is my son. Whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What's the point? God is saying this. In this moment, in this picture, in this frame, if you want to call it a frame, is everything I want to say and reveal and do. It's everything I want you to hear. If you want to know me, if you want to please me, get with him. That's what this is saying to you. That's what this is saying to me. The Trinity is an object of beauty and wonder. There's only two human beings that I know of, anyway, in the Bible that actually go up to heaven. I mean, in the context of the Bible. And that see the throne of God, all this amazing stuff. Isaiah chapter 6, some of you know the story. The prophet somehow is transported into the throne room of God. He's freaking out. There's all this smoke and these angelic beings, holy. And then John chapter 4, excuse me, Revelation chapter 4, where John the Apostle in the New Testament has the same experience. In fact, John says he's like a dead man. In both of these cases, these two men who are in heaven, in heaven with God, they're overwhelmed, they're kind of freaking out, they're humbled, and they both hear and see these angelic beings that are beyond human description. You know, if you read those two passages, they're six wings and, and they cover their eyes and they cover their ears and they cover and they have all these eyes and these, and these beings both say the exact same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? The whole earth is full of his glory. And most commentators say each one of those holies was for a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 41, if you're a note taker, the writer John says in the 12th chapter, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he says, Jesus, or excuse me, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. That's what he says in the New Testament. Okay? Holy. What I'm saying to you guys is this side of heaven, 
Matthew 3, 16 and 17, this is the Trinity. And it's supposed to be for you an object of wonder, an object of beauty. Paul David Tripp said these words, great a theologian in our time. Few believers suffer from a God who is too big, but many suffer from a God who is sadly too small. We all have to take care that our limited ability to conceive or imagine doesn't restrict our theology of God and his glory. We cannot allow ourselves, it's my challenge to me, to you, to hold a theology that shrinks God down to manageable size. The kind of God you worship, the kind of God you have, determines the relationship you have with him. He's Father, he's Son, he's Holy Spirit. The Trinity is an object of beauty and wonder. Second thing, this truth tells us, the Trinity is on a mission to save the world. Now here's where it gets a little bit practical, hopefully helpful. Some people would say, if I was you know, some famous theologian, you're asking me a question, which I'm not, but if you were asking a question, say, listen, I kind of get it, you know, uh, at least on paper, one God, but three persons, but then you're kind of contradicting yourself because you're saying they all have the same essence and they all have the same attributes. So then what's the difference? The best way we can answer it is the difference happens in, re- in the relationship to the work that they do in redemption. That's how I know there's a difference. The Bible doesn't tell us everything, but this is what it reveals. Is I'll tell you how the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are different. They're different because the, the role that they have in the execution of the gospel. Listen very carefully to these words. Galatians chapter 4. 4 through 7. And I want, as I read this verse very quickly, it's a short couple of verses, I want you to, when you see the word God, think of Father and the Son and the Spirit are self-explanatory. But when the set time had fully come, boy, there's a ton in that, in that phrase. When the purposes of God finally came to a head, that he started, well, not only did that go with Adam, but then in a unique way with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, roll up, drum roll, please to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, to the little baby born in Bethlehem, etc. When the time of God had fully come, God, Father, sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, daughters, God sent his spirit, second sending, of his son into our hearts, And the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father, the same words that Jesus used so much here, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are God's child, God has made you also an heir. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our brother. Okay? It's an amazing concept. You are a son of God. So what does the Bible say in this one passage? The Trinity is on a mission to save the world. The Father conceived the plan. What do I mean by that? Our famous first, you're going to see it today in the, in the in Buffalo Bills end zone. Right? For God so loved the world. When you see that, he's talking in that verse about God the Father. The Father is the one who came up with the plan. Okay, He conceived the plan. There's two sendings in the verse we just read. God sent his son, then he sent to accomplish a plan, he sent the spirit to apply the plan. The son accomplished the plan. If you're a note taker, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
For he became sin for us, speaking of Jesus, he became sin for us who knew no sin, Jesus. He wasn't baptized for his own sins, but for mine and yours. He became sin for us who knew no sin. That's what the cross is about. He took a bullet for you that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He accomplished the plan. And third, the Spirit applies the plan. Right here in Galatians 4, many, many places. Because we're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts so that you're no longer a slave. In other words, how are you going to go from being robbed the sinner to becoming more like Jesus? It's the spirit's role in redemption. Okay? Our salvation hangs on these two sendings. Galatians 4, 6, or excuse me, 4 through 7. It's another illustration of the Godhead at work on your behalf. Let me say this, summary. Without these two sendings, the Father sending the Son and then sending the Spirit, God would still be a Father, but He wouldn't be your Father. God would still have a Son, but He wouldn't have many children. Okay? The Father conceived the plan, the Son accomplished the plan, and the Spirit applies the plan. What an amazing, amazing, beautiful thing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what is it saying to us? Work 24 hours a day, 365 years to bring about a change in you. Last point. The Trinity is at the heart of your discipleship. The Bible, let's, I should say not about the gospel, it begins with a baptism. We just read it. And it ends with one. It begins with the baptism of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It ends with yours. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, you've heard this passage many times, the great commission, so to speak, resurrected Jesus. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, doesn't make any sense until it does, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Bible, the Bible or, or excuse me, the gospel begins with a baptism and ends with one to make a point. What you see in that beautiful picture, in that frame, heaven is open, the Spirit descends, it lights on Jesus, Jesus is baptized, identifying Son of God. It's supposed to say something about your baptism and about the Trinity at work in your life. Now, there's two baptisms. This is very, very quick. Some of you know this, some of you don't. There's the baptism of the Spirit, and then there's water baptism, which we do in this room sometimes. The baptism of the Spirit is, is something that you can't see, but you absolutely know it. When you trust the gospel, right, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, when you trust and put your faith in what God has done for you, the Bible says God sends his spirit into your heart. We saw it in Galatians here in this passage. But it says it in other passages to, in a sense, make the guarantee of his salvation. It's the, it's the for the first fruits. It's the beginning. It's the earnest of the deposit of your ultimate change. He sends his spirit into your heart. We often use this term being born again. Okay, That's where it comes from, John 3. This God sends his spirit. That, that's a baptism. 
It's called the baptism of the Spirit. That happens when you put your faith and trust in Christ. It could happen in your kitchen table, happen in this room. It has nothing to do with the church in the sense of an organization or um, a, a ceremony of any kind. Okay? It's, a, it's an act of faith. Now, water baptism is something that you do, I do, churches have done it, Christians have done it for 2,000 years. Publicly, it's a post, I'm already a Christian, but I want to shout, I want to declare to other people that I'm a Christian, and the water baptism is mirroring of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the mode. I'm going under the water, mimics, in other words, Jesus did this for me in, John, in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. He did it on the cross in the grave, but he's saying, I'm, I'm, water baptism is a declaration of your faith. But in both cases, okay, Here's the point. You are baptized into the love of the Father, the life-giving teaching of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. You need all three. Let me say it again. That's why he says, go and make disciples of all people, but make sure you baptize them in the name of the Father who conceived the plan and who loves you more than you can ever imagine. Of the Son who's the one who got on the cross for you, who's cleansed your sins, in the spirit who comes as an agent of God to bring, give you the power to do something you could never do yourself. Okay, make sure you do that because that's what the baptism does. The love of the Father, the life-giving teaching of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. To know God in a saving relationship is to know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's, I'm done. Let me just say a few words. How'd I do? I don't know. <laughs> don't, uh, but uh, um, with the elephant in the thimble. Um, let me say this. What's the application? What I say, my big idea was the, the kind of God you have or the kind of God you worship determines the kind of relationship with God you have. Okay, I want to encourage your relationship with God. And what I'm guessing for me, start with me, is that I have an uneven relationship. In other words, I'm, I'm under-utilizing the Father who's opened up heaven for me, who loves me more than I can ever imagine. I'm under-achieving, realizing, experiencing the identifying work of the Son who also gave me his words, remember? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And I'm under-realizing and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit who was sent into my life to give me the power to do the things that Jesus said. So how can, let me say this too. Put up that number, text baptism. This is not what the purpose of this sermon is, okay? If you've never experienced the spirit baptism, another way of saying that is I've never become a Christian, you need to do that by putting your faith and trust in Christ. You don't need a ceremony to do that. You just need personal faith in the finished work of Jesus. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our, wait for it, hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's a beautiful thing. You do that at home, those of you watching from home, right? It's, if, it, okay. Bapt, but if you want to, if you've been a Christian but you've never been baptized, and here's why you've never been baptized. Ah, who needs it? It's not gonna get me to heaven. It's a, it's a, it's a dusty old ceremony um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to be in my gym shorts, whatever, okay? Um, listen, you're, miss, you're missing something. You're missing something. Two times only God says something from heaven. The first time is Matthew three sixteen and 17. 
and when, what we realize by the time you get to the end of the gospel, what was said of Jesus, God wants to say about you. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love, within whom I am well pleased. So if you, if you, want, if you haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. Okay? Not for my sake, for yours. So you can text that number and we'll get back to you. We're going to have a baptism the month, I think, after next, I believe. But let me just close by saying this. You'd say, Rob, I got a ways to go. I'm barely, you know, uh, uh, you know, have a, know how to negotiate a relationship with my spouse or my friends. <laughs> you know, and to God's another issue. And I, he's three, but he's, he's way out ahead of you. Some people would say, you know, uh, the father, I have a hard time with the father because I had a crappy father or I had an absent father or my father, I don't even have a father, I mean, that I know. But here's what I know about that. And I think we're all in that company. I, I never met my dad. He died when I was an infant, so I'm in that company. But if you, even if you, know, if you know that a crappy father, if you know what a crappy father is, it tells me you know what a good father is, right? That's how you would define it. So you're smarter than you think, what I'm trying to say, okay? So you need to change your mind, change your point of view, and realize that you, there is a God who loves you who created a mission to send his son, to send his spirit. For God so loved you. It's time to change your mind about God the Father and realize how much he loves you, right? The worst possible sins that were ever committed were were all put on the cross of Jesus Christ. You couldn't even think up the stuff that's there. He's way past your, your guilt and shame. He loves you. It's time to open your life up to a good, good father. Second, some of you struggle with Jesus in this sense. I mean, we all, Jesus maybe is the one we're most identified with. But what this passage says is baptizing him, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded him. Right? How do you worship Jesus? Well, you need to get more comfortable sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching, holding on to it as a standard for your life. Why, through which you live and, and through which you intersect the world. Right? You know? Do you, do, you, do you have that kind of relationship with the words of Jesus? Or do you take the ones you like and put down the ones you don't? Okay? And lastly, there's the Spirit. Okay? Send into your heart to sanctify you. I think a 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 2.10 says this, The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. What are the deep things of God? It's not, you know, how many angels can dance on a pin. It's, it's the deep things of God are the, um, the, the deeper experience of his love, the deeper experience of his peace, the deeper experience of his release, the deeper experience of his wisdom. That's what I need. Are you asking the Spirit for that? As you read the word of God, are you saying, open my mind, open my heart, breathe on me as we just got done singing. Bring greater understanding and depth and breath to my life. Holy Spirit, fill me again and again and again. Read the book of Acts. Okay? That is control. That's what we mean when we talk about the feeling of the Spirit. The kind of God you have, the kind of God you worship, determines the kind of God um, you'll have in a relationship, what your relationship with Him will look like. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last thing I'm going to say before I pray. I mentioned baptism. Also, um, we ha- those habit journals, I don't have one in front of me, what is a habit journal? It's just a, it's an old school, I mean old school since it's not digital, a way for you to read scripture and pray and respond to it, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
What am I learning? How am I growing? How do I turn this into a prayer? So we've handed out 1,500 of them. But there's about 100 left. And if you don't have one, now if you're not going to use it, don't take it. But take it on your way out. Amen? Let's pray, and I'm going to say a prayer, and then I want you to watch this brief video. Father, thank you for this morning. We love you. We thank you. We need you. Be in our hearts and our minds today. Help us, Lord, to take us some time, even today, to reflect on the wonder and the beauty of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we open our lives in, in new ways to the to the Godhead today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.